just a reminder that we do have our Patreon, and if you could go and support us, that would be brilliant. It keeps the podcast going, pays all the bills and stuff like that, so it is really, really helpful, and we love everyone who's on there. Thank you very much. Go to patreon.com forward slash HM4AS, the four being the number four, and if you could give us a couple of quid a month, that'd be brilliant. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Hello. It's Mick and Lucy from the popular tattoo-based podcast, How Much for a Sleeve. And we'd like to give a few moments over to our new sponsor, DSM Tattoo Machines. Lucy, tell us a bit about them. Well, Mick, DSM Tattoo Machines make exceptional coils and now a new rotary. Tattoo machines, not guns. You can check them out at dsmtattoo.co.uk. And don't forget, you get 10% off with discount code SLEEVE10. They also make a range of needles. You can find them at lockdownneedle.co.uk. I think they're very nice. How much for the screen? Hello and welcome to How Much for a Sleeve, a podcast about tattooing, hosted by an actual tattooist, Lucy, and an actual knob, Mick. How are you, mate? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, all right. I've had some, um, I've had an interesting week. Have you? Um, yeah. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> uh, Have you? Yeah. Uh, first oh. off, I was started off the week bad because of the football. I was very sad on Sunday night and Monday. I had way too many cans uh, <laughs> again. There's no need for that football match to be on at eight o'clock at night. Yeah. Like, I understand that because the semifinals were played a day apart. So you have to give them a certain amount of recovery or it's a disadvantage to the team that play on the second day of the semifinals because they get one day less, but if it's more than four. So just play it at five or something. And then you don't get fucking... Having said you don't get lads putting flares up their ass, they were doing that at about half 12. <laughs> and I, I, I how did that, that feel? Was it worrying to do that? Well, I was surprised how easily it went in because they're no, they're, no, <laughs> they're no wieners, are they? What, what I don't understand... It just buries a slack area. Sorry. It's yeah. just, it, but it's just the conversations that they must have. <laughs> Oi, Connor, what? You got a, uh, you got a flare still? Yeah. I've got an idea. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get on a handstand, right? Get all the lads to pour beer on my bollocks, and we'll see if we can fit the flare inside my ass and anus. Oh God! It's so weird. But that is I, if, so. Yeah. I would never do that, but I would definitely stand around and encourage people I didn't know because <laughs> it is. It is funny, but what? Just what so happened? I didn't. You sent me a video, but I didn't see it to uh, completion because I was concerned. Yeah, it was just a bloke got done naked with his short his short his trousers and pants around his ankles but he's doing a handstand and his mates are holding him up <laughs> they're putting a lit flare into the the cleft of his ass to try and hold like, it there but it's not a, it's like a distress flare smoke thing not a fire okay so all oh, right that's what i was concerned about no because i think i think you can hold it in your hand and it doesn't it doesn't burn your hand like but, a sparkler no no but it's like it's it it would fill it would fill a sports center with smoke. There's loads of smoke and it goes on for ages. <laughs> so he was just, they're, they're distressed things, I think. So they're designed to be lit and go on for ages. So he was just doing a handstand, pissed up, 
in the in the heat. He'd probably done a couple of bangs of whiz as well. So fucking nutters. Um, yeah, just fucking the place up. And then we lost in the cruelest of ways. And then all the cunts had to come out and be racist because uh, black people are successful and they don't like it. And yeah, you know, and those poor lads, Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho, and Bukayo Saka. Know, they're still kids. They're t- the, Rashford's the oldest at 23. Done more wow. with his life that you know he's he's the one that fed all the children when the Tories said that they oh, yeah. they had to pay their own meals because because they couldn't um, they couldn't afford it, but they can afford 200 million pounds on a fucking yacht that the fucking royal family don't even want. <laughs> um, so he's done all that, and then he has to wake up to fucking monkey emojis and things like that all over his Honestly. socials and. A couple of people have been arrested, apparently, which is good, I guess. But yeah. I don't think it should, ever, it should ever even need to get. There is no way, there is no reason for anyone to ever send a row of shits and a row of monkey emojis. So if someone's doing that, that does not get published. It must be so easy to do. Yeah. Someone's using a combination of these things in the same way that you can put trigger words into things so, so they automatically get flagged. Yeah. And get checked. Do it with emojis as well. That's it. They do, they, they, all of those companies do the bare minimum. Yeah. You know, our Tanya Buxton puts a picture of a nipple tattoo. Yeah. Taken down immediately. Oh, yeah, that's God. it. Well, I no, must take that down. Think, think of the children. Yeah. But yet someone God forbid. Racist. And not, not just someone, multiple people. Or, and it's all in, the, like, what else? In the hour after that game's finished. Mm. There was also another uh, excellent example of someone being hacked where you know these hackers you know the things that they can do like they can get into your bank they can get into all sorts of those really private and important bits of your life and take information and use it against you this poor bloke because he's just a uh, estate agent oh um, yes yeah he got he, he, he got he got hacked oh, and that's so that, yeah. that person with those skills to hack into something yeah picked a random estate agent with about 18 followers and just sent racial abuse in the in, in, in the hour after the game i mean that is so unlucky isn't it so unlucky and they're yeah. so you know these hackers are so clever to hack into a twitter account as well i know yeah. it's like it's like those, the, those male celebrities who get hacked and somehow the hackers have a picture of their penis that they send to women yeah that's, that's so mad isn't it pete wentz i know that was that was a shame <laughs> yeah. um sonia from eastenders that was a shame <laughs> I don't know the one about Sonia. What did she do? Did she send a message of, of her penis? Uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> I don't know if it was vagina or if it was penis. Well, she sent it and it was going around. Sorry, but she got hacked, didn't she? There's a, there's a cricketer <laughs> who did it. Um, was hacked. And the... Did he, was he wearing his socks and had a pack of backy on <laughs> No, but that is, that is the best <laughs> dick pic I've ever seen. <laughs> we'll come back onto that in a minute. I think I might have mentioned that already. We have mentioned I? it, yeah. Class. But um, yeah, Kumar Sangakara. That was your best work. Kumar Sangakara, former Sri Lankan captain, when he was playing for Surrey, allegedly sent a picture of, it was hacked and a picture of his penis was sent to someone, but he was wearing cricket whites. So it's like, it's obviously one that he'd just taken at the time, allegedly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, and then to compound my misery of the football and being hung over at work I had a kitchen delivered on Monday that should have been delivered on Sunday and should have been started fitted on Monday and they forgot the oven which is a pretty integral part of the of Ooh, and quite also important. quite an expensive bit of the thing that you buy that we ordered 12 weeks ago Ren Kitchens 
fucking rat, <laughs> rat kitchen um, <laughs> with a W. So the poor, the poor fitter was like, because they just dump it in your house, and it's like, right, is that everything? And you go, I don't fucking know. <laughs> Am I supposed to know if there's enough length of cornicing or whatever it's called to go on here? I don't fucking know. <laughs> so anyway, I said, yeah, all right, I'll sign for it. I said, the um, kitchen fitter's in here, so he came in and was looking for, and he's a, uh, yeah, you haven't got an oven. So he rang them up and they were like, oh yeah, that, that oven's out of stock. So I was like, <sighs> right, safe. How's it out of stock? We ordered it like 12 weeks ago. So, oh yeah, well, just, you know, just just not in stock anymore. So like, okay, so what are the options? And she goes, well, you'll have to wait for it to be delivered. I was like, we're fucking paying you thousands and thousands of pounds here. Can There must be a better option than just to wait. Is there not an upgrade, free upgrade to the one, the yeah. next one that we've got that's the same size? And they were like, oh no, we don't do that. I was like, of course you fucking don't. So their option, unless we want to wait forever, is for us to go out and buy it ourselves, which we've, had to, which we've had to do, or we have to pay the electrician again to come back out again in a couple of weeks and fit it, which they're not going to oh. fucking help us with. So the, the, the poor kitchen fitter, this is another thing, his name's Mick, and ah. Ren sent, sent his, like, this is what we're paying you to me. Sent it to the wrong Mick. Ah. So, so like, I don't know what, fucking breach of gdpr and all that but now i know what he's getting paid i don't care what he's getting paid but that if we were if we were in conflict and i knew how much he was getting paid yeah. i could then use that against him you know oh Just so bad isn't it that is bad so, i yeah, always knew got, there were snakes oh ren kitchen we're getting a uh so yeah we, we bought one and it's getting like fitted you know just about in time Otherwise, we'd have to pay him again. And it's like, there was no, no help from them. And they fucking don't answer the phone. And that does my fucking boxing. Like, if you're constantly got hour-long waiting times, there must be something you can do. You know when it says you're 15th in the queue? Or push a button and we'll call you back when we're free. So you haven't got to sit there. And hope. These things exist already and they don't do them. It's basic phone stuff that exists already. Um, are you okay? Yeah, I'm in a huff, mate. <laughs> Have another swig. <laughs> yeah. lovely, lovely, lovely cold lager there to calm me down. Um, let's talk about something nice yeah. that has uh, cheered you up today. Yeah. We had a right lush message from a man called Matt um, yeah. telling us how decent we are. Me, I mean, just telling me yeah. how lush I was as a host. He said I should sack off that Mick from Ren Kitchens. And uh... well, no, he's, he's all right. Mick from it's it's Mick Mick who who's getting who's talking to Mick from Ren Kitchens. He needs sack off. <laughs> Mick from Ren Kitchens is fine. Good lad. Um, yeah, thanks, Matt. That did cheer me up today. And there's something in there that you said. You said I'm a nobody in the tattoo industry, and that oh. is simply. I think it's it is actually impossible to be a nobody who is a tattooist. I'll tell you why. Every tattoo you do, even though you might think they're not good, there'll be someone's first or there'll be something Aww. that stays on someone forever. And you might think you're nobody, but that's bollocks because every day that person wakes up, looks down at their arm or their leg and goes, oh, yeah, Matt did that. And they'll do that for the rest of their lives. And that doesn't happen in many jobs unless you're out saving someone's life. And they'll remember wow. that. But not everyone nearly dies. You've thought about that. I have. And it's true. That's really true. It is true. That is really true. You're not a nobody, Matt. Come on. No, you're not. Come on, Matt. Have some self-worth. You're fucking great. And I looked at his tattoos and they're well nice. Get in. So... Go on, Matt. <laughs> um, I put a little call out on Instagram today as well, just to say, like, who do you want us to chat to? Who should we reach out to? And somebody said, hey, sailors underscore rehab said, get your other halves on. 
chocolate. Yeah. I said, why? Like, so you can send in your deepest sympathies. <laughs> like, what could they? they would literally, both of them would come on, like, and agree that we are fucking knobs. Yeah. <laughs> They're narcissistic, attention-seeking twats. Yeah. Is, I mean, because Grant's definitely the quiet one. But Danny, Danny's like... I don't know, you're fairly equally talky. Yeah. I'd say. She's yeah, quite she, talky. She, she, I think she would she she would hate the idea of talking on something like this, but I think she would thoroughly welcome the idea to tell you all how awful I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, would be, that would be the one yeah. topic that she could talk <laughs> about for 10 minutes without pausing or repeating herself. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. So uh, sailors underscore rehab. We're not going to do that. No, sorry, mate. Thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> though. Keep them coming in, lol. <laughs> uh, something else exciting happened this week is that I rode my, I say this in the loosest, uh, <laughs> loose fucking way, rode, rode my Harley. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like, I had a well good bike lesson yesterday. So my tests in a couple of weeks and mod ones in a couple of weeks and then I'm trying to get a, a cancellation for the mod two, so I don't have to wait as long as it is. Because my instructor will will at Ride Academy Hockwald. If anyone's looking, he's well decent. Um, he says I'm fucking awesome, the best uh, motorcyclist he's ever seen. Basically, he said you don't and even need that. You, you're that good. You could probably take the tests and be better than I am. I mean, I'm teaching him. Yeah. In each lesson, yeah. <laughs> And he said, have you been out on your bike yet? And I was like, no, it's not legal. And he was like, well, I'm amazed. I would have had it out. And I was like, oh. So yesterday we were out on Grants. And then we got back because it's my bike's living at his while he does some colour change into it. And I was like, can I take it around a garden? <laughs> so luckily Grant's got a big garden. <laughs> and then, oh, my God, I was just absolutely clueless. He had to tell me about, like, the fucking... Um, there's like a tap to turn on the petrol and it has a choke and um, I started it up and I was like fucking hell and it was facing the wrong way and I was like can you turn it around for me and he's like well yeah okay so he's like just ride it around the corner I was like hold on calm down so I went around the garden a couple of times yeah, yeah can't do, can't, definitely can't do corners because I nearly went into the hedge yeah. just like both ah, feet just the ground, like oh <laughs> fucking how it's loud it is so loud and um, it's yeah you would love it and <laughs> so when I did like a couple of laps around and Grant was like wow this is worrying <laughs> and so we're on fucking grass like it's me and the mole here there's so many fucking holes in the grass and it's on a slope give me a break and then after that I was determined just to go around a couple more times and like lift my feet off but <laughs> so yeah, I've officially ridden my Harley now so that's exciting <laughs> get in it's hard. It's really heavy, but I'm sure it'll be okay eventually. You'll laugh when you're all fucking whizzing it round. I know. Remember when I couldn't even turn it round? Remember when I yeah. couldn't even get, get back up the garden and you had to turn me round? Yeah, literally that. Literally that. <laughs> but so yeah, that's something exciting. Uh, what else is new? What else happened? You went to see one of our erstwhile <gasps> guests. Oh yes, I did. I went to see our prison style Tim at his new shop BRB in Folkestone. Oh, but that was very sensible, wasn't it? Not much laughs. Not much laughs. <laughs> so very quiet, I imagine. Um, well, I took away um, an engraved butt plug, hand engraved walnut butt plug, and um, you may have seen on our Instagram 
uh, Tim and I tattooed each other at the same time. So we'd agreed that we were going to swap tattoos. I think we pretty much agreed on our podcast episode with him. Um, And when I got there, he was like, I've got an idea. And I was like, okay. He's like, let's do it at the same time. And I was like, fuck yeah. So then we were trying to figure out coordination. And then he's done a little, a mini fuck you on the front of my shin, just under yours actually. And so, and then... I had my leg on the bed and I tattooed like the sort of side of his arm and <laughs> straight away I went, oh, you know, I said, what are you going to have? And he was like, I don't know. I'll, uh, I don't know. You decide. And I was like, din, 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 din. you know what you're getting there. <laughs> and um, all day he was like, at the end, he was like, I, I don't think I can actually get a dick. You know, I don't know if, <laughs> you know, it's right in my arm. <laughs> so I was like, low on the arm as well. So it's yeah. above the elbow. Yeah, below t-shirt line. So we went for a sensible abbreviation of his favorite podcast, HM4AS. Yeah. And it was lol. Yeah, we literally, he was so quick. It took about two minutes. We both finished at identical times. And um it was, yeah, well fun. And he's awesome. Absolute delight. Lush. It looked like it was a lot of fun. Um, shall we talk about our our guest for today? Oh my god, this one! I was so excited for this. Yeah, so literally is, so excited. It is Dr. Matt Lodder, who is a senior Lodder. lecturer, <laughs> who's a senior <laughs> lecturer at the School of Philosophy and Art History at the University of Essex. Yeah. So not not a, a, a standard guest of ours. So not not a tattooist, but an actual tattoo nerd. Yeah, that's the best word, isn't it? Yeah, and he just knows. And you said something in here about how someone who doesn't tattoo and the 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 way he speaks about it and the way that he understands that the everything that goes along with it, it's like talking to a tattooist. The way he talks about I don't know needle groupings and things yeah. like that as well. He just knows so much about the theory. Yeah, and, and the understands it where it's come from. Yeah, like so I will sort of say like is a five mag and he'll know where that how that five mag fucking started Mm -hmm. how it came about who was the first person to use it I mean you know as an example but he is just incredibly knowledgeable he you could just ask him anything and he'd know just so so interesting he's yeah I want him to um be my personal history teacher (laughs) so Matt what's this Where'd this come from? Go, well, yeah. But that is literally what it is, isn't it? We, mm. so, we Something will pop in our heads and he would, without being well well interesting or well actually, he would just go, well, you know that. And then bang, there's a story about where it came from, where who started yeah. it, where it came from, when, who they learned from and all that. Yeah. We had a Mad right good long old chat, didn't we? It's yeah, a long it is, one, but it it's so one. good. It's a long one. Definitely worth it. Yeah. Nearly as long as this intro. But without all yeah. the puffs at the start. We've had a lot because the reason is like we haven't spoken to each other for te- on uh, on a device like this for 10 days. It's way too long. Got to sort it out. I know. We I need, know. We need more guests. We do need some more guests. Get your get your uh, get your what they're called? The recommendations in. Yes. Come yeah, please do. That'd be awesome. Um, we'd love to know like who you'd like to speak to rather than us just dipping into like our sort of um iPhone contacts or <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been trying my luck with a few people this week, just sort of jumping in the emails. I thought maybe I'd go more profesh and email, say, hi, my name is Lucy. I'm a co-host of the podcast um, and I've not had any sponsors. So I think I'm going to go back to sliding into people's DMs. Yeah, do it. <laughs> um, I'll do that. 
um so also maybe I was a bit creepy and one of them I was like here's my Instagram if you want to check out I'm not a creep but it's only going to prove I am a creep so sorry about that (laughs) (laughs) yeah um what else have we got to talk about what's on our uh list of topics before we sign off for Matt Lolder that's it that's it okay that's it uh, the important topics of nice man message Tim and motorbikes are done. Football's <laughs> done. Kitchen done. Definitely not done. done. Kitchen's not done. <laughs> Talking about it's done. Because if I talk about it again, we'll be in another twenty minutes of me saying fuck. Yeah. So, uh, shall we get on with it? Yes. This is episode twenty-three of How Much for a Sleeve with Doctor Matt Lodder. This is Good Time Charlie, and you're listening to How Much for a Sleeve. This week, we're speaking to Dr. Matt Lodder. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on. I am very excited to have you on. I've, you're one of those names that it's always, you were sort of aware of. So, yeah, really happy. And I'm so interested on the history side of it as well. So, yeah, thank you so much. It's very exciting. <laughs> My pleasure. And thank you for being our first doctor on. <laughs> Dr. Well Dr. Matt. Like obviously years ago, like back in the day, um, lots of terrorists like called themselves professor, you know, took on this title. Yeah, we've had a and I think, professors on. Yeah. yeah. And so people like I, when I when I first got my doctorate, like I think some people did like assume I was putting it on. Like I, it was yeah. it was some kind of affectation that I'd. Yeah. Did no, you start asking? Do you start asking your friends to just call you Dr. Matt? Oh, I, yeah, I absolutely insist on it. All the time. Yeah. 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 My mom, everyone. Yeah. But like Ross from Friends, when they're like, yeah, uh, it's a exactly. Like, uh, me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll get I you do... to look at this. I've got a mole. I'm just going to get you to check when we're finished as well, if that's okay. <laughs> it's in the shape of Ed Hardy. So Excellent. maybe that'll work. Yeah. No, I, 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 um, yeah, I I, uh, I do actually kind of in it's it's I, I when I got my PhD I did put it on my bank cards and stuff because it is quite fun like having like doctor on you know bits of public identification and then having tattoos on my face it's quite a nice little <laughs> moment piece on you know I used to work for Santander and we figured out you could just change the title on people's accounts to anything so everyone <laughs> in the branch there was like a Commodore Smith. And I think I yeah. was Lady, Lady Lucy. You, you, you want to go, go for like Wing Commander. I think that's always yeah. the one. <laughs> yeah. Wing Commander Tickner. Right, or Air Commodore. Yeah, a really nice <laughs> ring to it, that, can it? <laughs> Especially me as I, as I trip up walking into the bank because I'm clumsy. Here you go, sorry. <laughs> um, so, Matt, do you want to just give the listener an overview of who you are, where you've come from? Yeah. So, yeah. So I am, um, I'm a tattoo historian. I um, work at the University of Essex uh, in the UK. And yeah, I sort of, you know, I I was a tattoo fan, a tattoo collector, a tattoo kind of nerd first, and then an academic second. Like, you know, I wanted just to sort of figure out this amazing thing that I've been obsessed with since I was a kid and because I was a nerdy child I was just trying to find books and trying to find read as much as I could and there wasn't much out there and like what was out there didn't really make much sense to me and so like here we are really you know many many years later um I've made it my <laughs> career um and I feel you know I feel really lucky because you know as I said I'm a, I'm a sort of professional tattoo historian but so much of the history um 
as we were just talking about before we started recording actually like is in the community right and it's been really not museums not um it's not been like libraries it's not been big institutional collections it's been like private individuals families tattooists tattoo fans tattoo collectors over the decades who've been keeping this stuff really sort of safe and looking after it and I sort of see it as my job I guess to try and put some of that stuff into some bigger contexts and to try and figure out how you know broader tattoo history fits in with with history history with a capital H but um I I always am just so grateful and honored and you know humbled to be able to kind of you know work within this community um to try and help tell some of the stories I think if I if I wasn't a tattooist your job is my dream job <laughs> I am such a history nerd especially social history and an absolute art nerd so it's the two combined it really does sound like the dream just the dream really well like well thank you I mean you know I so I feel very privileged to do what I do and it's it's um it, it's really interesting you know because tattoo history has been of interest uh, to people for forever, for a very, very long time. But because of the way that, you know, academia has worked and, and the way that tattoo collection has, collecting has worked, just those bits haven't really connected because academics, you know, who were interested in tattooing in the past would like just ring up tattooists and be like, oh, you're weird. Tell me about how weird you are, right? <laughs> and, this, <laughs> and there wasn't this kind of empathy. There wasn't this kind of understanding um of of the community and i you know i and i'm a part of a generation really there's there's sort of a few of us around the world now um who have sort of you know come up through getting tattooed and being involved in tattooing in a in as customers and even even not, not just as customers as artists as well who are able to now kind of stop bridging the gaps a bit more between kind of academic history social history and, and tattoo history because like you know Actually, Alex Benita said this to me once, you know, like if you're an art historian, the, the art, you know, the, the, there's more interest in the art of tattooing in a general sense than there is in art with a capital A. And if the claims of art history are true, right, if we can tell things about people and places and times from like the, the art that they made and consumed, like if that's true about stuff that's in churches and in country houses and in museums, like it must be particularly true, especially true of the art that people carry around on their bodies and like so I sort of have really come to think about tattooing as this you know sort of test case really for for social history and art history told you know more broadly right because it's it's an insight into very intimate lives right the very intimate details of people's lives um which other kinds of historical writing traditionally hasn't been very good at accessing you know yeah <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I think I think uh, tattoo history, as it's been written before, has really missed out on all that stuff because it's been interested in tattooing, kind of as tattooing. You know, it's been interested as this sort of weird esoteric practice, and like it is weird and esoteric. That's why we all love it, right? But it also has so much to tell us about wider, wider yeah. stories. I think. Absolutely. When did tattoos or tattoos or tattooing, when were you first aware of them? Well, so, I mean, I tell this story a lot, right? Like my, um, when I was a kid, I grew I was born in 1980, I grew up in the 1980s. And um, there was, I was obsessed with like all these like, you know, 
heavy metal rock bands and and WWF wrestlers basically who were tattooed <laughs> right when I was like a kid. And my parents and my grandparents were always like, "Don't get, don't get tattooed. You regret it when you're older." Because I got told like two stories in in um, combination right by my grandparents. One was that my granddad, who was a submariner in the Dutch Navy during World War Two, he told me that he woke up drunk on his rum ration in a tattooist's chair in Jakarta in the Dutch East Indies during World War II as they were about to tattoo a fly on the end of his nose. <laughs> and he woke and he woke up just in time. Right. Is it was like, this a story a bit like um was it the great Omi? Is that yeah, his name? Well, yeah, yeah, Omi. Yeah, well Omi he got tattooed by a guy in a white coat with permission yeah. of his wife. Um <laughs> So that was what, and then, uh, then also uh, my, my nan would tell me that my great grandma was tattooed. Uh, she had a, her brother came home one day with a tattoo machine, which I since actually think was probably bought from a toy shop. We know now for, for a couple of years at the beginning of the 20th century, you could just buy tattoo machines over the counter in, in toy shops wow. in London. It's mad. Yeah. Um, the bits of tattoo history people don't know. But so he, he came home one day with a tattoo machine and said, hey, little sister, can I tattoo you? And she said, will it come off? And he said, yes. <laughs> so oh my God. she had apparently, she died before I was born, but she apparently had her initials tattooed on her wrist um, and she hated them. So, so those two stories were like, you know, don't get tattooed, you'll regret it. It's awful. And of course, you know, you tell a kid not to jump, you, uh, not to jump in a puddle and that's the first thing you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that... And, and I think, as, I, as I've sort of said again on previous occasions to other people, like my, my career, I think, has become, in some senses, trying to reconcile those two stories. Like trying to, you know, because the, the drunken sailor story is a kind of familiar trope in all of yeah. our collective imaginations. But like where a, the daughter of a labourer and the son of a labourer in about 1900 got a tattoo machine from and that story of tattooing in Edwardian Britain in a, yeah. you know, in a pretty sort of, you know, straightforward, normal, quote unquote, normal family. Like that, that kind of link and that missing gap between those two stories, I think is kind of where I've ended up. You know, that's the kind of gap I'm writing in at the moment. That is, that's mad, isn't it? But I suppose you could also, well, you could also buy little kits of heroin and cocaine with yeah. syringes, 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 that's how you say it, syringes, <laughs> because they were from like Harrods, um, because they made them as little kits to send off to soldiers to help them deal with yeah. being in the trenches. So, yeah. like, I mean, so it was the, wild in Edwardian England. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the, the, the tattooers in the late Victorian period we were injecting cocaine as anesthetic, like, <laughs> to, to like numb the skin. Um, there's works. a great art. Well, there's a great article with a journalist who's like, oh, I got told I didn't need the cocaine. I got it anyway. And it was like, it felt real good. It's like, yeah, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. <laughs> I'm sure that worked out just fine for you. But you're real chatting. Um, but those are, but you know, that, that, that story, right, about the, about the toy shop um, tattoo machine is one that is, was is known within, you know, tattoo collecting circles because some of those pages of the catalogs that where they were sold like still exist but only in private collections they're not in any museums they're not anywhere else well and um it it's if it wasn't for you know if it wasn't for tattoo collectors who have been obsessed with this since they were kids you know in the 60s and 70s um who saw this stuff and thought it was interesting and important these histories wouldn't be known at all because you know just the stuff that museums have 
collected have been, you know, prison records and sailor roles and things like that. That kind of normal, quite quite normal, like vernacular tattoo history, just hasn't been of much interest um, to yeah. institutions. You know, when we we spoke to um, Professor York a few weeks ago, and oh, he. Yeah collects artifacts and and tattoo memorabilia and he said like the best place is literally someone's attic or someone's garage he would like track down people and then contact their relatives and go do you have anything so and so it is and like my we speak about this loads but my boyfriend's dad he tattooed in the 70s and he literally has his exact setup in this wooden workbox that he just closed one day and put it in the attic Amazing. and it stayed there and he brought it down to show me and it's literally exactly the same as it was the sponge yeah. is still there that he used to wipe on the skin and powdered ink still in there ultra packaging and it's and but that's the pe- that's where stuff comes from that's well, yeah, the I mean, only I way when I did when I did the exhibition, um, I wasn't quite the first person to just to discover it, but um, I I tracked down Jesse Knight's. Uh, great nephew a guy called uh, Neil Hopkins Thomas because there was sort of you know it was sort of known and had been known for a long time that that Jessie had this amazing collection of stuff that she'd got from that she built up herself because she was like linked in with the Bristol Tattoo Club and um, her dad was a tattooer and so she had this really amazing collection of stuff that she was very sort of guarded very jealously but she retired from tattooing in the like late 60s early 70s and the stuff sort of hadn't really been seen ever since and I got got in touch with Neil, and was like, "Hey, you've got a few things that belong to your uh, your great aunt." And he was because he wasn't really involved with tattooing at all. You know, he was just her sort of favourite nephew. And he was like, "Yeah, I've got a few things in the in the loft." And like that's that's the kind of thing you want to hear as a tattoo yeah. as a tattoo historian, as any historian, right? I've got a few things yeah. in the loft, yeah. and it turned out to be this incredible, huge, and really importantly, like contiguous collection of stuff because a lot of a lot of what ha- what happened, or certainly what is happening now with tattoo collecting, is that when tattooists are dying, like the stuff's getting sold off individually, right? Like individual bits of flash yeah. and machines are getting sold off, and that that the stories that are able to be told when something's together is really lost. And Neil, amazingly, you know, when we put this stuff on display, so through this exhibition that ran from 2017 up until uh, earlier this year, basically did four years touring around the country and a huge amount of stuff from Neil's collection was in the in the exhibition and when that was on display like he was getting offers from all over the world by collectors and like really I'm really amazed and grateful to him and I sort of had to apologize to him because I sort of you know revealed him to the world a little bit um and like one of his items did get this amazing banner did get sold off this into a private collection but the rest of the collection, he sort of resisted urges to sell it. And we, I was able to, with, with him and with the Arts Council, like negotiate uh, selling it to the nation. So that's now been bought by the National Museum of Wales oh, and wow. the whole collection. And it's like, you know, it's Jessie's stuff, which is amazing. She was this, the first important female tattooer in Britain. But it's stuff that belonged to her dad, stuff, you know, flash going back to the early part of the, the century, like, Wow. amazing machines just but even but also beautifully like you know just little bits of paper where she scribbled like pop to the pub you know and as, like you know and and towels that are covered in ink and like just the real kind of material history yeah um which otherwise gets spread apart and about 700 objects basically from neil's collection is are now you know safe wow. for the nation and going to be kept together 
no, yeah, that, I'm really happy we're able to do that. And I'm really grateful to Neil for being sort of brave enough to, to not sell it off individually yeah. Um, yeah. to collectors, you know. So I imagine there was quite nice. a big financial incentive for doing that and could be something quite that you could easily get drawn into doing if you don't like you said if he doesn't re, if he's not really into it doesn't appreciate the significance of what he's sat on if someone yeah. says that's really significant you go oh is it how much does it cost how much is it worth yeah that's your first and neil question. again to be again to be really fair on neil he didn't do that right so yeah. it, it, the stuff the stuff just was in plastic bags and holders in his loft right <laughs> i was like do you yeah. know do you, do you know what you've got there yeah. and um and what was what was interesting for him because he wasn't involved in the tattoo world but he did understand that it was his you know that this was important and he kept it safe in fact like there's a great story as well about um do you know about samuel stewart who was the guy who taught ed hardy to tattoo? one of the guys that taught ed hardy to tattoo um who was this um, astonishing guy like really amazing amazing guy who was a literature professor at Chicago University in the 1930s and also a rabid gay nymphomaniac to the point where he was he was like one of the main um, st- uh, study participants for Alfred Kinsey's Sex Life of the Human Male. And he kept a thing called the stud file where he recorded every person he ever slept with. So he's a fascinating guy. There was an amazing book about him um, called The Secret Historian. And he started tattooing because um, he really fancied like hot young sailor boys and he was getting a bit too old to pick them up in bars. Like he'd go cruising in bars for, for guys and he'd get beaten up. He got beaten up a few times. And so he was like, well, I can't be dealing with this. How else am I going to meet hot sailor boys? I know I'll start, tatt- I'll start tattooing in my, <laughs> in my summer holidays between teaching English at university. Um, and um, <laughs> yeah. I, like, I mean, it's out. that's why a lot of people start really, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's quite. Why, right. That's why I started. <laughs> and he was—he was the guy. He was—he was the guy that like introduced Ed Hardy to Japanese tattooing, for example, because he was a—he wow. yeah, was a bookish academic guy um, who was, you know, reading history and reading books about tattooing. And when when he met Ed, he was like, "Here you go, check this stuff out." Um, but he basically like he died pretty much like you know unknown and penniless and quite sad actually. But the person that kind of looked after his estate was like someone's going to come looking for this stuff one day. I'm going to look after it. <laughs> right. And part of the story of the books by a guy called Justin Spring is the story of Justin, like tracking down this material, like spotting this one guy who seemed to be a sort of footnote in loads of different histories. Like he was a correspondent of Gertrude Stein's in Paris. Like he's just this amazing guy who was a sort of weird footnote in loads of different bits of intersecting history. And, um, yeah, like his 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 exit was like someone's going to come looking for this stuff one day. I'll I'll look after it, and and thankfully now it's all it's all kept wow. safe. Um, there's an amazing book actually called The Obscene, which goes with the secret secret historian book of images called The Obscene Diary. It's loads of his tattoo flash and quite I mean not even quite very very pornographic photography. Um, <laughs> at a time when being gay was illegal in America, you know, like he was just this astonishing guy. So, wow. yeah. These things are out. This is also sort of what sustains me a bit as a historian. It's like this stuff's out there to be found. I mean, sometimes you keep looking for stuff and you can't find any of it. Like a lot of the guys that I work on, not much the vibes of their, yeah. of their stuff. Um, you know, it's uh, I quite like that, you know, there's, there's always stuff out there to be found. 
why else was included in the exhibition? I, I never saw it. I didn't go. Yeah, well, so we so we basically did a story of like four hundred years of British tattooing from um, uh, the sixteen uh, hundreds to the to the basically the year two thousand, really. Wow. And because um, I've done a, I've done a smaller thing before. I did a little thing at the Museum of London, which is sort of a, a sort of br- very brief history of London tattooing that did a kind of tattooer per decade from the 1880s and then this was this was sort of like that it was a it was a kind of chronology it was really important for me to like tell a story an unbroken story because so much you hear about tattoo history is that like you know it 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 goes away or you know there's some kind of now and then you know tattooing is now one thing before it was something else so it's really important for me to sort of tell a, a story of tattooing as continuous and it it basically included yeah, we had, you know, we had like um, Victorian doorbells and like dental pluggers, the things that tattooists were converting. We had like photography from the 19th century. We had some, had a pilgrim stamp from the 17th century. Um, wow. We had like sailor handicrafts that were very tattoo-esque. And then as we moved into the kind of 20th century, um, loads of flash, photography, drawings. And then we, you know, we, we had then oral history interviews with people like Lal and Rambo, Jimmy Skews, Willie Robinson. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was, a, it was a big exhibition. We had like 400, thick, 400 objects like squeezed oh, into the show. Um, I'm devastated that I just could never coordinate to go. I mean, yeah. is it like, going to be anything else like that? Or is it ever going to come back? Or once well, it's all so, sort of disbanded, is that the end? Yeah, I mean, so so... We're going to reinstall a smaller version of it back in fact. So it started in Falmouth at the National Maritime Museum, uh, which was you know great, but a bit far for people. It's a bit of a trek out to Falmouth. And it was never designed as a touring show, but then there was so much interest in it um, that it, we, we toured it around. And COVID sort of got in the way and we lost a couple of spots last year because yeah. of, of COVID. But basically, we're going to do a small version of it back at Falmouth, hopefully from October for a year um and i think we'll we'll also hopefully do an exhibition of jesse's stuff in wales at some point um because there's there's more there's loads more stories we want to tell you know i wanted there's there's also now you know more stuff's come to light we've learned a lot more i think there are things i'd like to to do slightly differently in the storytelling like i'd like to focus a lot more than i did on women Mm -hmm. and people of color like we there's a bit of that in the show but i think we could have done more of that so yeah, I mean, this is the thing with tattooing, right? There's there's a huge amount of interest in it, as you guys uh, know, but not a real dearth of good quality information. You know, yeah. um, just not a huge amount of good stuff. I'm right. I'm writing a couple of books. I've been writing one book for ages that just never gets finished. Um, <laughs> What's that one about? Yeah, well, you know, so so I'm I'm I've been sort of trying to do a real sort of straightforward like academic art history of tattooing book for ages and that that sort of is what became the exhibition actually which is partly why that didn't okay. get finished it's still ongoing i'm finishing okay. up a book at the moment for harper collins um that is a kind of it's not a history of tattooing but it's a history through tattooing so we're, we're doing like 21 22 like little vignettes of tattooed people throughout history that tell sort of bigger social historical stories is that so painted got... people the story of humanity yeah. and 21 tattoos yeah, so I think it might it, it might end up being called Indelible. That's the title I like at the moment. Oh, um, 
So, or yeah, Painted People was the title I pitched it under. Um, so that, and that is much broader, like historically than I normally write about. Like, I normally focus on like modern uh, Anglo-American, European tattooing really, but this is much bigger. Mm -hmm. There's like stories in there about China and um, the Americas and uh, ancient tattooing and all kinds of stuff and like, things that, um, you know, I've learned a lot doing it from, from people that are working on different, in different fields. Uh, and then, yeah, I'm hopefully going to be doing a, a more photographically heavy book, which is in discussions at the moment. So we'll see. I need to basically, I, I love researching and I do like writing, but I also have ADHD. So I find it really hard to focus on one thing at once. Which is why I've always got a million <laughs> things going on, none of which are ever finished. <laughs> well, when I was just looking up, sort of just doing a little bit of research for this, I typed you into Amazon and that's what came up. So I was like, oh, look at that. And it oh, said I didn't know that. Okay. in October. That's what it said. Yeah, it won't, I, it, won't, it won't be out in October. It might be out. I think it might be early <laughs> next year. I'm just finishing off actually this. I've got to finish it in the next couple of weeks. Oh, so, um, awesome. Yeah. I'm always astounded. Like, what, I mean, one of my favourite authors is Anna Corsi and she does lots of, well, she's a social historian. And um, actually, one of the people that she, one of her earlier books was about um, Edith, Lady Edith, Marchioness of Londonderry. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And yeah, and I just, I'm always astounded. So for, for anyone listening, like Lady Edith, she had a tattoo of a snake up her ankle and it was quite well hidden. And then as hemlines became shorter, then right. sort of came on display and um, just, but just amazing, amazing women. But like, all these books that Anna Corsi writes, she covers a lot. For example, there's one called The Husband Hunters, which is based on well, it's all about um, it's like Gilded Age New York and um, American heiresses, their mothers finding broke British aristocrats for them to marry, and they would yeah, sort yeah, of exchange yeah. their dowry for their title, and then that would escalate their social <laughs> standing in New York, but her books are all made up of individual stories about lots of different names and I just think god that the research that goes into it blows my mind it must just take so so long to compile this these books and I just yeah it's so interesting I love them just the day-to-day -day history but I just I mean it looks like a lot of work <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's it, that's the fun of it though right like I really love I really love the, the the sort of thrill of the chase and trying to figure stuff out. And and I, as I said, I'm, I feel really blessed that so much knowledge is 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 in the tattoo community. And I just, you know, a lot of my job really is just trying to contextualize that, you know. And I again, I feel very very blessed that I'm able to do that. And it, like, I love that story of of Edie actually. And I tell it a lot because it's really indicative of so much, right? Like she, so she had she had both of her lower legs tattooed. She had a big family crest on one leg and a sort of dragony snake thing on the other and you know it was pretty it was pretty much the, the done thing when she got them done or like early 20th century going to japan getting tattooed and then if you're an edwardian woman you're not showing off your your legs and then yeah she's sitting at the front row of a fashion show and everyone's like oh my god you've got your legs tattooed and she's like well yeah i've had them done for like half my life she was in a like almost <laughs> in her 60s by then um and all of a sudden it's this, oh my God, everyone's, you know, everyone's got tattooed now. It's this quite, quite new trend. And I, I think like the fact of all this stuff happening, you know, just out of sight and under clothing, I think is such an interesting yeah. metaphor yeah. For, for so much of the bigger story of tattoo history. Yeah. 
what was the we took like we talk a lot as tattooists about the um sort of reaction to tattoos day to day like oh yeah don't worry about getting jobs and general yeah. general consensus and you know um people think of sailors and my mum thinks of concentration camps but if we take it right back to like 19th century what was the general attitude towards tattooists because the people like George Birch are tattooing royalty yeah so, well, so, this, is, so this is this is what I find like so kind of problematic about the um the sort of this story of like you know tattooing's not just for sailors anymore it's this brand new trend and I think like or and it, and it's maybe even in the opposite way to people that that people imagine right because actually tattooing like there isn't really a now and a then and in fact like I do a talk one of my talks I do is just headlines from newspapers where like every decade since about the 1880s it's like oh tattooing's this brand new thing now everyone's doing it right yeah. um <laughs> and actually the truth is that like tattooing is always weird right in western culture uh because it, no matter how you know quite unquote popular it is and it's certainly true that tattooing is more popular now than it ever has been of course and certainly more visible um it's never going to be like acceptable because it transgresses some quite fundamental things about <laughs> about western ideas of embodiment you know it's it's about being touched by a stranger it's about um uh, it's about making permanent decisions uh, but also about being sort of out of fashion and out of time like it's just it involves willingly submitting to pain, which is not something we're very comfortable yeah. with in the West. Like, so tattooing as an industry uh, in England, at least, exists because rich people wanted to get tattooed, right? So tattooing forever um, has been this kind of intimate practice between people that know each other. It wasn't even just sailors then, you know, public schoolboys were tattooing each other and whatever. Um, but tattooing up until the 1880s in, in Britain, at least, was like, you know, something that you just sort of did with your friends, with your mates, with your with with your confederates. But it was basically going to Japan. So Japan was closed off to the West for, for a couple of centuries. It opened up uh, in the 1850s. All everything Japanese is trendy. People travel to Japan um, and very, very quickly, kind of all the good authentic original art like sells out or ends up in western museums and if you want to get a kind of piece of authentic japan you get tattooed uh, and in fact there are guidebooks which make that exact case it's like you know you want a piece of real japan get tattooed and in fact japanese tattooers had a real in, um, incentive to do that as well because it was it was illegal to tattoo um, japanese people but they could get away with tattooing foreigners so they were advertising <laughs> themselves quite heavily um they tattooed you know George V and his brother got tattooed. Lots of um, wealthy travellers got tattooed. And word got out, or they all came back. They all rolled up their sleeves at parties. And it was like, oh, my God, yeah, like, Japan's cool. Where can I get that done? And all of a sudden, the guys that had been tattooing in the army, like Sutherland MacDonald um, or Tom Riley, uh, were, were basically, like, able to make you know, make their living tattooing because rich people wanted to pay them to get tattooed, right? And that's that's really what turns tattooing in, in Britain from a, a an intimate practice between friends into a business. 
Um, but it's always been, even when it was patronized by rich people, by, by royalty, by celebrities, it's always been a sort of a bit of a, like, you know, it's always been a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> the journalists journalists have always written about it as this sort of strange you know, why would you do that to yourself kind of thing um yeah. and i think the reason why this like cliche persists right the reason that we have this cliche of oh tattooing's like now trendy but that's that that sense never goes away is because the people that are writing about tattoos are always surprised that other people are doing it right <laughs> and that's that's the, that's the thing yeah so i remember someone said to me that um tattooing has been like as a as a job has been around since the sort of late 1800s which is when the first motor car came out yeah and no one would describe driving a car as being a new a new thing <laughs> but it's the uh, the timeline new fashion. far off yeah i mean it's so it it is also i mean that's important to say as well the context the context of, of tattoo history like from an art historian point of view it makes sense to me it's like and I, you, you guys as, as tattooists know this as well, like people are tattooing on themselves the images that they care about or like in their day-to-day lives. So of course, when everything Japanese is fashionable, people are tattooing those same images on themselves. I've got a, an article coming out. Well, I'm writing it at the moment. It should be out next year, I hope, uh, initially in Japan, but I think we're going to translate it into English as well, um, about this like little frog design that was by, uh, by Horiyoshi, excuse me, um you know these um this this tiny little little frog design that is is everywhere right it's it's on plates it's on silverware it's on um sorry by hokusai uh it's, it's this hokusai frog that's like in print it's on fabric it's on silverware and, it, and tattooists are using it as tattoo flash and it's like this kind of intersection between visual culture and tattooing. It like, seems such an obvious thing if you understand anything about tattooing at all, but it's not something that anyone has ever properly really taken much notice of. And I, I find those kind of explanations about tattooing and its, its relationship to the wider visual culture, just such a, so explanatory. And of course, like, you know, it, as you say about the motor car, like, you know, the, 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 the other thing that propels tattooing really is the invention of the tattoo machine um and invention probably is even a bit strong because really the early tattoo machines were ad adapted from other things they were adapted from dental pluggers machines you know for filling cavities they were ad adapted from um doorbells they're adapted from uh, like devices that uh, were used in offices you know for, for photocopying quote unquote photocopy um and that, that's all, again, a product of the Victorian era, right? A product of electrification, a product of yeah. mechanization, a product of urbanization, of, you know, uh, of, of, of a kind of consumer middle class, like all of this stuff. Um, tattooing as being part of that is just a really straightforward thing. And it, it's really funny to me when I read, like, you know, interviewed with Sutherland MacDonald, uh, who I've written about a lot, uh, who was the sort of first real, like, visible pro in, in Britain, but he, even by like the end of the 1880s, is like, oh, tattooing's far too trendy now. As you know. <laughs> oh my God. I was just going to say, um, I can't remember what I saw or what I was reading the other day when they were saying about when people wanted to get tattooed in the 60s or 70s, it was hard to find somebody to tattoo them. 
they'd literally have to like ask yeah. around for recommendations and yeah. look up in the paper and stuff and now yeah. you literally cannot walk down any high street without bumping into a, a tattoo studio a sign yeah so i think in the street but but for people you know people of our rough uh, rough age um i think like that who are the children of baby boomers right like that real stigma of tattooing in this country really does kick in in the 50s right it's a time when tattooing is just kind of quite unquote at its lowest ebb it, it becomes this moment when you know as you mentioned earlier on about the concentration camp tattooing like that obviously is a huge moment where tattooing is visible in the most horrific and disgusting way so tattooing mm. takes on this kind of association but also like you know uh, there's lots of tattooing that happened during world war ii but then after the war the tattooing that's visible is on people who are digging the roads and not on you know if your bank manager or your king has a tattoo you're not going to see it so there's a kind of visibility thing happening and also just popular culture's changing you don't have you know everything's getting sleeker right? all of that chintz of the that had been kind of very popular for, for decades through art nouveau and art deco and everything by the time we get to modernism in the 50s like everything's sleek and so the kind of patchiness of tattooing is just doesn't fit in with the visual aesthetic i mean there are you know there are amazing tattooers in britain like les skews in particular who's keeping it alive but it's really at that moment when it gets this real association of like working class and criminality mm. um i mean that that in britain at least that 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 really doesn't kick in until the 50s either and so yeah that just does mean that during the 50s and 60s i mean you'll still read articles and interviews with with people you know, interviews with with les goose with george bone actually with loads of those artists who are working who are like no we are we're artists we're serious you know um Les Scooge was doing talks at art schools in the you know late 60s. He put on an art show actually in London, the first sort of British tattoo art exhibition in, in Camden Art Gallery in 1971, I think, or two. So there were people yeah. even then trying to keep it alive. But in the general imagination, it was pretty like that was the moment when it was pretty dodgy. And yeah, there are people I've got like clippings from people in the 50s, like writing in saying like, I've heard of this. I'm looking for a tattooist. Can anyone recommend one? There's a great one from the whole Daily Mail, actually, from the mid-50s, where the women's correspondent, a woman called Miss Humber, is like, <laughs> oh, I hear that women are... I mean, again, it's always like, oh, I hear that women are getting tattooed now. Like, what a disgrace. And this, this, these girls, like, write in. They write in the next week and they're like, dear Miss Humber, like, we are not drunken sailors. Like, we have got delicate little tattoos on our shoulders that we show off in our dresses, right? And this is in the 1950s. <laughs> so... Wow. So even when tattooing, tattoo shops are pretty rougher than they had been in earlier decades, and even when, um, you know, tattooing in the popular imagination is pretty stigmatised, even then there's still people really kind of, you know, championing it and trying to talk about it as an art form. But yeah, yeah. It's, in, it's, it's interesting. What is your, what's your favourite, in terms of um, like designs, what would, what would be, or just general history, I suppose, what would be your favourite period of tattoo history? Well, when, so when I was, a, when I was younger, like, I, I was, I didn't get, didn't get tattooed until I was 21, actually, because I got into tattooing so young and I was buying tattoo magazines um, from when I was about 14, like going into London and going to Tower Records and buying like punk records and buying Tattoo International and Skin and Ink and stuff outlaw biker review all those 
magazines <laughs> and I just fell, fell in love with American tattooing. And then I, I got, you know, again, in the early nineties, I got copies of um, Tattoo Time and I got copies of uh, Bob and Primitives. And like, for me, like Bob Shaw, you know, like the stuff that, that he was tattooed with by Burt Grimm uh, and others like mm-hmm. in the, in the forties, like that's that like American mm-hmm. sailor tattooing of the forties and fifties is like, just blows me away. It's how I met yeah. um, Lau Hardy actually. Like I, I, in 2003, I was really like, we're looking to get some like Sailor Jerry style stuff. And that was sort of before it was, that, I mean, it was, well, I can't say I was some kind of pioneer, but I, but it was, it wasn't <laughs> as popular as it became. Um, yeah. And Mar- Martin Clark, who worked with um, Lau at the time, was a real, like, one of the real, like, guys in London doing kind of old, you know, what we call old school at the time. So that's that stuff I properly love, just, and that's a lot of stuff I've got on me a lot. I, I have, over the sort of period, over the, the researching, I have become really obsessed with, like, the stuff actually that Nick York is collects. <laughs> him, him, and I, him and I talk, talk a lot, like, uh, you know, the stuff that I've, I, I guess I'm an expert in, like, the late 19th century English tattooing pre um yeah like before basically before like American comic book stuff in the 50s like transforms English tattooing when it's very fine line and very um you know very delicate I really love that stuff although yeah uh, again I wrote an article uh, a, a while ago um called new old style which maybe people can look up because it's available free online and it's basically about how every generation of tattooers like thinks that the generation before them um were were no good or they were no good so there's like <laughs> i really like you know I, I love you know again i have a lot of stuff on me like i love these tattooers who are so obsessed with like getting authentic looking 1940s and 50s looking tattoos that they kind of whip shade it and break uh-huh. it all up um, but actually, if you actually look at some interviews of some tattooers in the 50s, they're like, who are these fucking idiots that can't shade properly? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So this, the, these ideas of, um, these ideas of, you know, authenticity and of, uh, of the past and stuff, I think are so interesting. And I, I also think a lot of tattooists, uh yeah also sort of have you know have a have a sense of their history which is sometimes it quite difficult to reconcile the evidence that i find and it's it's interesting to try and fit those things together hmm. i'm gonna have to back. ask you for sorry, a- sorry lucy can i just go back on something you said about um uh, perceptions earlier yeah perceptions have obviously changed but like you said the, the, about the stories being in the press that i just wanted to to touch on there's there's a recent one about Raheem Sterling, the England footballer who had a, right. had a he's got a gun tattooed on his leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the reasoning for that was that his father was shot, and when he found that out, he made a promise to himself that he would never touch a gun or never be involved in guns right. or, or, or 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 anything associated with that. But the way that that was portrayed in the press as recently as three or four years ago was this person's got a tattoo; they're bad because yeah. they didn't know the the backstory and couldn't be asked to find out what it was it was just a it was a successful black man so probably they were just trying to find an easy way of knocking him down a peg or two because that's what the tabloid press does yeah so <laughs> the the perceptions so you've got that happening on one side and then uh, on another side recently i saw an advert and I, it was for Sainsbury's or Tesco's bank and the there's a, a a young mother with a child on her knee talking to someone getting financial advice from them 
and that financial advisor yeah. or bank manager has a tattoo, visible tattoo on the arm in the printed advert. Now those yeah. those are curated within an art, an inch of their arse, aren't they? So what color pen <laughs> is in the pot is, is a decision yeah. that someone has to make. So they've obviously gone and thought, we want to have someone with a tattoo in a position of power yeah. over someone. So I, I, I don't know, I'll get what I'm getting at really. Just how, how do they both weigh up when we've got that on one side and then the press on the other? Yeah, well, so, I mean, it's so, it's so interesting. And I, as I said, I spend a lot of my time sort of saying like, I don't think things have changed as much as people imagine. And then I remember I went to see that when the first new like reboot Star Trek movie came out in the cinema, it was like one of the adverts before it was an advert for a tattoo healing cream. And I was like, oh, this, okay, this does feel quite dif- different. Mm. And, you know, oh. there was a, there was a, um, there was one last year of uh, something the post office put out that was like, and it was a family, like a guy and his child like baby and he had like a burning church tattooed on his arm it was like okay <laughs> things have changed a bit right mm. um but you know i have to say you know um barclays bank had a tattooed man in their adverts in the 60s uh like right cosmetics cosmetics brands had tattooing in them in the 20s and 30s um Elsa Schiaparelli the fashion designer did a line of like tattooed themed bathing suits in 1929 so like well, what it is brand, you know there was a brand of makeup but there was um I don't know if that was like is that literally what you just said but it was <laughs> the brand of makeup was tattoo there, yeah so that was, was in the 30s yeah and there were others yeah. as well but there was one yeah one brand called called tattoo in like the 1930s and like so the right the thing is tat- like tattoo tattooing gets to sort of it's it's a good shorthand, right? It's sort of cultural signifier for lots of things, some of which are quote unquote true, some of which are are more complicated. You know, like um, there's loads of tattooing in the night in the um, like Warner Brothers and Merry Melody cartoons, like on you know Popeye is a good example actually, but then on you know on wrestlers and boxers and tattoos make a good gag. So we have a kind of cultural imagination of of who gets tattooed and why. And it's often, and this has come back to what you said about Raheem Sherling, like it, it's this thing that I think, again, those of us that are tattooed and do tattoos un- understand differently to the general public. It's what a friend of mine, Nikki Sullivan, calls dermal diagnosis. This idea that you can read on someone's body, their character by looking at their tattoos, you know, that you can kind of see their tattoo and go, oh, this, this is a kind of perfect encapsulation of their most intimate desires and ideas. And therefore, we can judge them as mm. as bad or or as whatever, right? That's a, a lot of um, a lot of criminology. A lot of the early criminology writing about tattooing is exactly of that form, right? It's like this person's got a tattoo, therefore they're a bad person. Um, it's really linked in with scientific racism. Actually, it really comes from the same place of like we can read your body and measure your skull and stuff and tell on your right. in your skin how bad a person <laughs> you are, right? Um, Adolf Luce, uh, the uh, architect and a, a writer, basically said, if a tattooed man dies at liberty, it was only a matter of time before he would have committed a crime. Wow. Right? Wow. So, like, if you've got a tattoo, you're a criminal. And if you're not a criminal, like, you would have done it. You would have been. <laughs> you just died before. <laughs> and, of course, that's also really linked in with, like, changing ideas over the 19th century about primitivism and race and stuff, right? Um really interestingly actually when we when tattoos are first written about 
among non-Western populations in the Americas, like in the 15th century, it's like, oh, hey, look, they've got tattoos just like our ancestors used to. And they still had this idea of kind of cultural evolution, which is problematic. But the idea was like, oh, everyone gets tattooed, right? And then by the time we get to the 19th century and the colonialism of the Pacific, um, it's like, oh, they've got tattoos, therefore they're savages, therefore they're different from us. And that changes over the course of, of, of a couple of centuries. But that idea, actually, that idea of tattooing as primitive and savage and backwards is still, or, or indicative of criminality, is like, you know, that's 150 odd years deep, uh, or so, maybe probably more than that, 200 years deep in our cultural conception now. Um, and then I think, but what comes with that, and this is, you know, this is uh, also what's happening in the 19th century with like Orientalism and stuff, like, always things that are like that also signal some kind of transgression some kind of edginess some kind of coolness and so brands um you want to use those cultural signifi signifiers as indicators of you know of coolness of transgression of of whatever and that's again that's been the case since at least the 1920s that's uh, well probably, interesting because probably I've earlier always, i would always just assume that that i can't remember seeing them but maybe it's like a um not really but like a bit of a mandela effect type thing that yeah i've seen all these tattoos and things but i'm told that they're bad as a kid so i don't remember them so then yeah. when i see one i go oh fucking hell there's a tattoo yeah. on an advert that's unusual i mean I, so I don't i don't want to sort of overstate my case it definitely is the case that we're seeing more tattoos now than we ever did before and i think you know you, you do see tattooing in a lot more mainstream like you know like the post office or whatever you do see tattooing yeah. a lot more mainstream way and it's a lot more because so so, so tattooing is just more visible it's a more visible part of our of our lives now you know certainly if you think back to like i don't know the 1990s with jean-paul gautier and the tattooing mm. in there or the, the fashion brands that have used tattooing in the 80s and 90s like it was to sort of signify edginess and and that's not quite the case so much anymore so it is definitely the case that it's, something's different now but it's not a it's not a break i think what worries me always is that people talk about the tattooing now as some kind of separation from the past and actually it's a it really is just kind of an evolution mm. it seems to me and like you know um i think what's also happened and this is also just part of the story that goes back to what you're saying about ed earlier on lucy like one of the reasons that tattooing is more visible now is that clothing is more casual right mm. so i mean yeah again people are getting tattooed on their hands and necks now more than they used to which might be a you know side effect of social media. There's certainly a theory that that's the case. But um, we just you know you can wear more and more people wear t-shirts to work now, short sleeve shirts, whatever, casual clothes, casual or casual ish clothing. If you were a bank manager in the 1920s, you had a bank, you had a back piece. No one would ever see other than your mates and your partner, right? Mm. Um, if you were a king, it's the same. Now, if you've got a tattoo it's uh, it's pretty you know it's it's it's, it's going to be much more readily visible than it would otherwise be so i think there's also this kind of i call it a kind of um you know lens problem really we just sort of see more tattoos now than we ever used to yeah we have um we have a friend he used to be the piercer at the shop i work in and he's really heavily tattooed and in his 60s big white beards like excellent hair and um <laughs> he models and his photo just pops up everywhere like it pops up on the tube and stuff and it's for like prudential or yeah. saga 
or something and he's just always the really well-dressed tattooed older gentleman and it is mad every now and then like Mick takes me a picture of him on the tube before it's like is that is that your Nigel <laughs> but then in the next shot there'll be like your granny sitting a cup of tea like drinking yeah. a cup of tea out of a giant teacup and yeah it is it is mad really but I suppose yeah everything you said it makes so much sense and we are wearing fewer clothes than ever before if anybody in like Victorian England <laughs> saw how <laughs> the average 18 year old girl yeah. walks out or every 18 year old boy walks um walks around wearing like god they'd have a breakdown wouldn't they <laughs> yeah and we definitely yeah, we definitely see that particularly actually in women's tattoo trends you know as cl- women's clothing trends change over the centuries tattooing I think is linked to that like the 1920s when women are cutting their hair short and and or, you know some women are doing that uh, metropolitan bohemian women are doing that um they're getting tattooed as well because it's it, it it it's indicative of something something more you know just, it, it's something more complicated and more interesting than um oh that person just sort of happened to get a tattoo I mean I'll, ultimately really where, where I come down on this is I'm not that interested in why people get tattooed mm. like I yeah. think I think a lot of you know a lot of academics over the centuries have been interested in like the psychology of tattooing. Like, why would you do? And I'm just interested in what people get tattooed and in what context. And actually, in the professional practice of tattooing, you know, the the the, the men and women who who have been been tattooers, and it's really like you know, it's them actually as as artists, I think, and as as craftspeople who who push tattooing forward. Mm. If you could be tattooed by any anyone in history and you had the opportunity to ask them a question, who would you get tattooed oh. by and what would you ask them? Oh, that's such a good... I mean, that's such a good question because I have... I spend my life trying to figure out stuff, you know, where it would be much easier if I could just ask the people. So I have <laughs> amounts of questions. I mean, I, you know, I would love to have been tattooed by Bert Grimm on the pike you know wow. uh, yeah. I would have loved to have been tattooed um by Sutherland Macdonald in uh, in uh you know the late 19th century I'd have you know loved to have been uh tattooed in the like 1970s by Ed Hardy at the height of his powers wow. you know like there's just too that's just a horrible question to ask me really should have given you um, more warning I should have yeah, asked in you terms two of- weeks ago yeah, in terms of like what question I do. So the one thing I was talking about materials and stuff. So as you may have guessed, I've talked about a lot. I'm really obsessed with Sutherland McDonald because he's such an interesting guy. Uh, but n- almost nothing of his survives. Um, and I want to know where all of his stuff went. I, <laughs> Probably in so the I, bin. Yeah, in the bin. He's... he's his shop or the building in which he was working was bombed in the war. So it may have been, it may have been lost in the wow. bombing. Um, and also he wasn't a guy who was like, you know, it was sort of a pre flash era really, or he wasn't really a flash kind of guy. So he, you know, but there, there definitely would have been machines and design books and things that I'd loved, you know, I'm, which I'm hopeful that actually may still be out there. You know, there are bit, there are bits and pieces of his very, very, very few objects that we can definitively say belong to him. Uh, and I'd like to know where, it was it must be really hard to prove the authenticity of things and there might be stuff about but no but it was his but you don't know and there's no link no provenance with it 
Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things about tattooing, of course, is it's so. Um, this is again, it's beauty. It's so kind of um, you know, it's so based on copying, and it's so based on. Yeah. And also, tattooists are just great blaggers and storytellers, <laughs> right? And and you know, Max was certainly like that. He definitely claimed to have tattooed the king, for example, and like he pretty much almost certainly didn't do that, but it was good for <laughs> business, right? Like. These guys, you know, they were hustling. They were hustlers. They were, they were, they were, they made a living from telling tall, tall tales. The guys yeah. who, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, in modern day, whether we're talking about Lal, Hardy and Alex Binney, or whether we're talking about um, George Burchett, like the guys that we really know about are the people that were the loudest and spoke to the press the most, not necessarily the best guys. Yeah. And we had a real interesting set of issues. And it's been an interesting period with the Jesse Knight collection, like trying to, or uh, attribute and pin down some of the most beautiful flash in, in her collection, who that was painted by. And there was quite a lot of dispute actually over the years about who might have been the, the artist responsible. I think we've pretty much nailed it down now. To a guy that not many people have heard of actually called Alex Gordon. Um, Terry, if you don't know, if you, your listeners don't know Terry Manton's Instagram page, Scottish Tattoo History, like Terry's an mm-hmm. amazing like, tattoo historian and like just brilliant at, um, uh, uh, ferreting out leads and he's pretty much definitively figured out that Alex Gordon this amazing American tattooer who worked in the UK for a while in the 50s is basically the guy that was responsible for kind of bringing American style tattoo into the UK and he's like he's almost unheard yeah. of like you know I hadn't heard of him really until uh, just a few years ago and we are pretty sure through Terry's work that he's the guy uh, that, that painted a lot of these amazing designs that are in the Jesse Knight collection and the amazing banner that got sold. Um, but you know, his name's not on it anywhere and no one's ever heard of this guy because he was a bit, you know, he, he was a bit um, reclusive. And then like after he died, like other people used his name. <laughs> so it makes it quite <laughs> difficult to work out what's going on. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's the beauty of this world, right? Like it's just full of amazing characters and beautiful stories and great art and, very intimate yeah. objects that were never meant to be kept as these pristine artworks. They're all you know, objects of use. I, when 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 we were uh, brokering the Jesse collection to to Wales, the paper conservator came to see the collection, and you know normally they're dealing with like art prints, you know, on beautiful acid-free paper or whatever, and like you know all of Jesse's stuff is like is on nicotine stained bits of cardboard you know and like back of cereal packets and you know done in biro and like and that's and and and, you know covered in wallpaper and that's got tape on it and I had the same thing I I met the woman who did loads of conservation for some of the Sailor Jerry stencils that are in the collection of the art museum in Philadelphia the, the the Sailor Jerry company the rum company who own a lot of their stuff now like who got it from from Ed and from Kate probably <laughs> she, spoke, she spoke to her um yeah. they, but anyway they they did they they paid a proper like paper conservator to look after that stuff and she was very good to, to preserve you know preserve the graphite in the stencils and things like that and wow. the fact that these objects are like they, you know they, they're objects of use um and fragile and and delicate is part of their beauty is part of their beauty um but it does mean that yeah finding stuff is increasingly difficult yeah god just going back there to using other people's names yeah can we talk about your imposter oh yeah i mean 
if it's of interest I don't know yeah it's I mean what do you, what do you wild, want to know well it's just a wild story tell us and whoever's listening doesn't know about what happened because it's just yeah. crazy so me and me and Anna Friedman, a tattoo historian colleague of mine, are writing up a, are writing up a longer version of it. So there will be an article version of it <clears throat> out at some point when we get around to finishing it off. But there's a Ooh. it was it was written about in the Guardian uh, and and uh, a couple of other places if you Google it. Yeah, basically, this kid um, in the US like was I still it's difficult to know exactly what's true and what's False, but basically, what we did know was he was uh, enrolled on a master's degree in the US, and he was his tutors basically thought he was some kind of genius because he was like producing this work about tattoo history that was like you know brilliant, 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 or certainly way above the level of uh, a, a student. And um, he'd won scholarships and all kinds of stuff. But basically, it turned out he was copying me and other people's work, plagiarizing it, emailing me and other people under fake names getting us to send him um, things we'd written or things we hadn't published yet that he was then handing in as essays. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, he got copies of my hand tattoos and my finger tattoos on his, on his hands. Um, that is so weird. And a video that's of creepy, him like, isn't it? I was, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what his pathology was. It was very weird because he was, we found a video of him like giving a talk, like reading out something that I'd written, like almost dressed as me. Again, not that I have a monopoly on, on the way I dress particularly, <laughs> but like in the context of everything else, it was pretty weird. Yeah, it was it was very odd. And he would have got away with it. He was getting away with it for years. Like he was very, he put a lot of effort into, into it, which is quite unusual for people that cheat at university. Yeah, because it's, sort of, it's the plagiarism sort of the, the place to go for the lazy and unimaginative. But that must, that's, almost more effort yeah he put more work into it than it would have taken to do it himself he yeah. so he took for example he took a magazine article that i wrote for total tattoo and he added footnotes to it like he went through and added footnote academic footnotes to this non-academic article um which it's like why would you why would you bother doing that it just seems like so much work um and he was getting away with it for ages but we caught him or anna caught him originally actually because he like created a website and an Instagram page where he copied Anna's um, Instagram page, Image for Image, and copied her website, Image for Image. Copied her bio, but just put his name instead of hers. Um, oh word God. for word, like, or, or literally word for word, or Lit- literally word for word. Like okay. I am, I am a, you know, I'm an expert in this and that, and blah blah blah. And and then and he he created academia like we there's a sort of social media kind of repository thing for for academics called academia.edu and he created a page on there where he like found a picture of me online and like posed in the same pose and then like yeah it was pro- it's really weird because wow. if it was if he was just doing it to get a degree uh, like if it was just sort of run run of the mill cheating you know like I want uh, to there's no need to like email the people you're cheating from and yeah. Uh, and, and create this public persona where you're instantly going to get caught as soon as anybody knows anything about this stuff sees it. So I don't know. I don't know what this guy's... He sort of had the good grace to sort of disappear. And we did hear when when The Guardian wrote about the story, I've been very careful not to name him uh, publicly and I haven't named what university he went to. But when The Guardian article went up, some students who'd been in his class like recognised the story and emailed me and Anna and were like, oh yeah, we were there at the time. It was really weird um and yeah he's 
yeah, he's 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 very he's a very strange, uh, I think, quite disturbed young man. But I think I think hopefully I think the vibe is he's like weird, not dangerous because <laughs> right. we, you know, like he knows where we live. He certainly knows where I work. Um, mm. He told he told he told his but like when we first caught him out, his one of his professors like before we revealed to them the extent of the stuff that he'd done, uh, he told them like, oh yeah, sorry, I was just trying to set up a website and I just used that as a template, right? And this guy like emailed us and was like, oh, I spoke to him. He's really embarrassed about this. Like, I hope you don't ruin his life over this because he's a really smart guy and he's been doing loads of great stuff, like giving talks in London at the London Tattoo Convention. I was like, no, no, he didn't. that was me that did that. <laughs> um, so he was, and you know, he, he was he was obviously following quite closely stuff that that I'd done and other people had done and 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 telling people very believably actually that he'd they've you know that, that he'd done those things so wow very very That's weird wild. and yeah and i as i said i i i don't know what he's up to now uh hopefully getting some help yeah i hope so <laughs> i hope so or or maybe he's um just impersonating somebody else now yeah he's definitely I mean, got a passion for um the beauty industry and is well, maybe i mean he's the last thing I did see of him is that he, after after he'd like got caught and kicked out of uni, he did briefly start doing loads of like bodybuilding stuff, and he was quite hench. And I am definitely not that. So like, yeah, um, he's obviously got some kind of dysmorphia things. I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. he's got he's got my tattoo. Well, he's got yeah, like okay. versions of my tattoos on his hands. Some people on, online were like, they're not copies. Just because they're bad copies doesn't mean they're not copies. Yeah, so like, the, yeah. It's, it's the, yeah, it's the same things, isn't it? It's, same yeah. work. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the photos. They're the same. Like, yeah, they you. are just bad versions. Yeah. God, that must have really unsettled you. Yeah, it was, you know, it was weird. I'm, I was, I didn't tell the story for a long time. I said this when I first put it on Twitter. Like, I didn't, I didn't uh, tell the story for a long time because it was pretty weird and we didn't know again really how dangerous he was you know, I, I sort of yeah. you know, listen to a lot of these like stalking podcasts and mm. you do hear like stories of people f- you know for years and stuff and thankfully when he got caught he stopped um yeah. you hope yeah <laughs> so he did have the good grace sort of disappear yeah. maybe he's playing a long game um, maybe it's maybe it was mick yeah yeah no hands no hands no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe it what, was a reveal. what a reveal what a reveal that yeah a great reveal <laughs> Fucking That's hell, why man. we set up this podcast. <laughs> this is all a ruse just to speak to you in person. We've wanted to don't, for so long. Don't. We're but, you know, I got next door. I got a good story out of it. So yeah. <laughs> and it just going on to something about about copying things. Mm. When we spoke to Lal Hardy, he he was sort of just we were talking about what might happen in the future, and one thing that he brought up was about the copywriting of tattoos and or the copywriting of source materials used in a tattoos because you all know that yeah yeah where tattoos come from you know when there was no instagram when there was no internet when there was you know i want a i want a panther and it's from a children's book yeah all that sort of stuff now we're in this show or world that we live in and everyone gets a tattoo and it gets published or and it's going to stay there forever do you think there's something will might happen with with being able to copyright your own work or on the other hand, is if if someone like uh, Steve Butcher tattoos um, a basketball player winning winning a trophy, 
And then the photographer then gets in touch with Steve Butcher or the person who's been tattooed and said, you owe me money because you've reproduced my image without my permission. Like well, we've all, yeah, we've already, so we, we live in that world already, right? So um, there's been questions about tattoo copyright for a long mm. time um, and about, you know, ownership of images and stuff. And basically like, the lawyers, particularly the American lawyers, in a lot of you know a lot of international copyright law and international um, you know uh, the, the organisations that manage copyright stuff are basically the US. So the US law is kind of primary on this. The, the the lawyers that have written about it, and it's never been tested in court, but the lawyers that have written about it is like, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. If this ever goes to court, it will be pretty straightforward to show that tattooing. Uh, absent of any other stipulation is going to be either a collaborative work or a um, or an individual creation of the tattoo artist. I, I actually, there's a chapter about this in my PhD thesis actually because the first ones that bothered the legal community, I don't know if they were definitely the first examples of it happening, but certainly the first ones that got written about was this basketball player uh, back in the uh, early 2000s, who had a tattoo on his arm, and then it was ab- it was um, it was animated for a Nike advert. Oh yeah, tat- I remember this. Yeah, and the tattooer basically uh, threatened to sue Nike, and I think they settled out of court. Um, and then there was the Hangover movie case as well with the guy that designed Mike Tyson's facial tattoo. Yeah. Um, that's he a bit- won that, didn't he? Well, he didn't win it in court. They settled out of court again. So no. I think it was all this one. That's also a bit more complicated because it's a parody case. But from what basically from from this, and there's been a few lawyers that have written about this <clears throat> in law journals. They basically say, yeah, like the way that the way that copyright law works is if you draw the image, uh, it's the tattoo, as a tattooer, you are at least partially. Um, the author of the work, right? Uh, it might be a work for hire if you stipulate that, uh, if your customer stipulates that to you. But in the absence of that, you're at least co-creator, if not sole creator of that work. And then in terms of like copying the actual designs, um, I know again, there's been there's been cases and there are cases about, about that with photography uh, and with drawings and stuff like like Disney, for example, have in the past taken issue with people copying Disney designs. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a, the thing is, so here, the question for me is, what would the remedy be, right? Because if you upload a um, infringing thing on YouTube or whatever, they will take it down, you know? But you can't, like there was a, it was a guy um, in the early 2000s who tattooed on his body the decryption algorithm for DVDs, if you remember that thing, it was called the AACS code, yeah. um, which was like the kind of bit of math that you needed to like pirate a DVD. And the company that were responsible for that were trying to stop people, you know, any website that published it would like, they'd sue it. And then this guy was like, well, I'm tattooing my body. Like it's a number I've tattooed my body. Like what can you do? Like what are you can do about that? Like what would the remedy be? Could you force someone to cover it up? Could you force them to have it removed? Like probably not. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting area of law, but and I think the indication, the fact that Warner Brothers and Nike both settled out of court in those two cases is probably indicative of the fact that they were worried enough that they'd lose, mm-hmm. that they that yeah. it was easier to pay. But you know, copyright law and copyright stuff like that is really expensive. Um, so I doubt that 
for any normal person, there'd be a problem. Like the other one, the other example of that, actually, Elaine Angel, uh, back in the mid-90s, um, got those wings held on her back and she re- she registered them as copyrighted design. She then had an, a little R registered trademark tattooed on, on the tattoo. Uh. And she, I think, successfully has sued people who use that picture um, because it was quite a famous image of her with a shaven head and the wings. I think she sued people for for that. Um, but it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even so, like even a lot of my research on the Victorian tattooers, like McDonald and Riley and Alf South, like they were lodging photographs of their work in the copyright. Like when you had to register for copyright, they were registering their copyright on their photography of their tattoo designs. Um, you know uh, in the 1880s or whatever so yeah it's it's an interesting and unsettled question um, <laughs> yeah. that's a great name isn't it Alf South is that Alf his name South. Alf yeah another thing you know the other thing that like Sailor Jerry used to do for example and others I'm sure did it as well to stop people copying your tattoo designs is when you design flash you design it like you you deliberately put mistakes in it <laughs> and you only tell the people you sell the sheets to where the errors are so there are like boot, there are like bootleg rubbings of um, Taylor Jerry Flash, which are like where the like the the like wrong lines join up, like quite imperceptibly. You have to sort of know what you're doing to spot it, but um, you know, putting kind of yeah, mis- deliberate mistakes in so you can see where where it's been copied. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Just put it, just Photoshop an error into every tattoo picture I post on Instagram to stop people yeah. robbing it. <laughs> um, the thing I love at the moment, actually, speaking of like copywriting, I, I I saw this and I won't name the I won't name the the, the act that freaking did it, but I saw a copy of a tattoo that was originally on someone's head and they'd taken a photo of it and put it on Instagram and the guy that nicked it had just traced it over the and so it was all like distorted and wrong. Because they because they just traced off of the photograph of, of of the tattoo on this guy's head that had all the foreshortening and all the, you know, it wasn't and it was just like oh you absolute monster like if, like the guy who tattooed someone else like they traced that design and included the nipple and then tattooed the nipple on someone's <laughs> arm yeah like. <laughs> I just, I mean, were they doing it with one eye closed? Why did they, did they not notice that was a nipple? Did they just have no concept of, like, no understanding of what they had to do? I just don't understand. I, don't know. I just don't know how that happened. Uh, actually, there's, there's loads of of stuff like that. I'm, I'm well into Transformers. And there's cool. bits that got into, like, magazines or get in. Grapple. There he is. <laughs> oh. My... Takara Tony masterpiece grapple, yeah, very cool. Um, but there, there's there's bits of, of of evidence where someone's copied something for the and actually got into a comic or even into a film, and it's they've just they've just copied it and put it in. Now I know there's hundreds and hundreds of panels and and bits of a film that you need to do, but you yawning already, Lucy, because we're, we're I'm so talking. sorry. This is, oh my this god, is, I'm this so is, rude. This is maybe for your Transformers podcast, but did you? Yeah, that's did it. You know, you know that like the design of loads of the original cartoon transformers is are based on faxes that they sent from Japan yeah. of the models. Yes. So they're they're based on like really weird blurred faxes of the yeah. things rather than what the actual toys look like. And that to recreate them because they they didn't actually fit correctly or when they would do like that. Yeah. So yeah. So what yeah. I was saying is that there's loads of bits where there's there'll just be a random hand on someone, 
because in the bit they nicked it from, he was someone had their arm around him, and there's just a hand yeah. or or a wheel, a wheel back here from a different yeah. character stays in. So, and I just I get that there's more. That's a more acceptable error if you if you're trying to recreate a thousand of something rather than, you know, tattooing a, a nipple on someone <laughs> and them not going. Why have you put that? You know, it's that's, that blows my mind. Yeah. But also, I suppose the person getting tattooed, surely they would look at the stencil yeah. and go, well, what's that part? Is that a honest, <laughs> Sometimes I look at the stencils yeah. and I go, I don't, I don't, I saw what you put on and I know that it's right, but there's lines yeah. on there that if you, I don't know what yeah. that line means, it might mean something else. You see it so, because you're a tattooist, you know exactly where that line needs to go and what needs to happen from it, but I might, yeah, I, mm. I look at it and go, yeah, whatever, I trust you. Yeah. That's but that's one, that's one of the things that I was really, again, I wrote about this a long time ago in my PhD thesis, like, it's one of the things I love about tattooing as an art form is that even when you're copying, like, you can copy, like, a hundred different tattooists can copy the same bit of flash and it'll, you'll have a hundred different tattoos, yeah. right? Because even though it's this kind of copying, it is a kind of, it's an organic analog kind of of copying and what that tattoo looks like is going to be dependent on your eye and your hand and the machines you're using and the, your skill level and you know the skin you're doing it on and like all of those different things you know how hard you put, push your foot pedal and what needle groupings you're using all that stuff and even when you're copying the same designs even though you have the most simple bit of like old school flash it's going to look i mean it's really easy to do that stuff really badly right <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing <laughs> Yeah, that is true. I suppose, like, when people bring... I was trying to say to people, we've all got different handwriting, so you're bringing me a reference picture and you yeah. say you like it like that because it's super light or whatever, but, you know, that's not what I do because my I wouldn't be able to write like <laughs> that. <laughs> and that makes people sort of understand it a little bit more. But I just... When you were talking there, it's mad, really, to hear somebody who doesn't tattoo know so much about tattoo. Was it never an option for you to t actually tattoo? Have you given it a go? Just not no. interested? No, I I can't draw a straight line. I mean, not that stops enough people, <laughs> to be honest. But, <laughs> yeah, um, someone had a nipple tattooed on him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, again, I think um, it's, as I said earlier on, about not collecting. I also have no interest in being a tattooer because I know I'd be really bad at it. And... <laughs> I I don't ever want that to interfere with my well the work I actually do right and I like it, I and I know it's probably not so much the case now but certainly early on in my career like I I know that plenty of people sort of spend a lot of time in tattoo shops trying to get apprenticeships and I didn't want anyone to think I had an ulterior motive um, yeah. you know to share material with me and talk to me about the things they knew I wasn't trying to steal people's secrets and I wasn't trying to um must in anyone's business or whatever i'm just sort of genuinely deeply interested in this stuff yeah. um and ditto with collecting you know when i'm asking people to show me things and asking people to trust me with with things that they know it's always in the service of trying to tell the story and not because i want to buy the thing off them or because i want to tell someone else that they've got it or or whatever so i always kind of Sort of, I never really had any desire to be a tattooist, actually, to be honest. But I also sort of decided, I think, quite early on in my academic career that I didn't want to ever have anyone think I had any ulterior motives um, about what I was doing. Yeah, you know, I understand um, that. 
and there's think- and there's so much because I'm not a tattoo artist as well. I feel really clear about this. Like I, I there's so much I don't know, um, obviously, and I would never kind of pretend to know. Um, <laughs> and I and there are people who are an amazing tattoo artists and and uh, amateur tattoo historians who are really able to tell those stories. There's a guy actually, maybe you should get him on actually, a guy called Adam Dade, who tattoos up in Sunderland, who okay. I think, other than maybe other than maybe um, old Sammy himself, Sammy Stewart, he might be the first tattooer, certainly in a long time, to be a practicing tattoo artist and a PhD. He's just finished his PhD or just literally a few weeks ago finished it on um, the, this kind of like tattooing as an art form from a artist's perspective like sort of this practice based PhD and he's a really his work is so refreshing to read because I read so much uh crap about tattooing written by academics who don't know anything about it um and and, and Adam's work is amazing because he's 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 got this obviously perspective of being a tattoo artist and has written very carefully and embeddedly about um about the practice of what he does and yeah he's able to do that and it's not it's not something i i would ever be able to do yeah that must be nice to have that perspective and like one of the interesting things with speaking to nick york was he was saying he uses like replicas of the of like antique machines and he had this set up he tried to make everything as authentic as possible when actually tattooing and that to me was like just so interesting i would love to be able to do that you know like surround yourself with that whole look the whole aesthetic yeah. intend you in 1901 and just yeah I love that one of the things I've been trying to do for years is get a like proper historical documentary about tattooing made um you know I just want I just think there's so much bad telly about tattooing you know I even just was browsing online yesterday or not online like on the telly yesterday and there was like some awful program called like 2000 tattoos but don't judge me it's like oh, oh. god there's so much of that stuff yeah like tattoo fixers and that awful tattoo two whatever it was anyway all tattoo television is garbage and the few documentaries we've had over the years have been good but flawed um and i really want to do a new one right and i've been chatting to to filmmakers to to tv companies and documentary companies for ages i even spoke to someone at channel four a few months ago and they're always like, oh, yeah, but no one's in- it's too niche. No one's interested. It's like, come on. I had like 100,000 people saw my exhibition, um, wow. even when it was in, you know, in these little museums. And I think like one of the things I wanted to do was exactly that, like do a kind of restaging of a, of, oh of a real from from authentic, you know, authentic designs and authentic um, uh, machines and stuff like even like um Ole Whitman, my friend and colleague Ole Whitman, who's a German tattoo historian, did an amazing uh, exhibition about Christian Warlick in Germany, and an amazing book in German about Warlick. He did this amazing thing where he found the initial the rest in the archives in Germany, found the recipe for Christian Warlick's tattoo removal serum from the nineteen forties. Yeah. So Warlick had this basically kind of magic source, basically that you'd wrap, you'd like rub on the tattoo. And then you'd wrap it, and then a couple of days later, you'd be able to peel the tattoo off, and it would be pres- the tattoo would be preserved completely on the skin. Um, but you could just t- you could just, just peel it off. Um, oh my god! And then, yeah, and then the skin would heal up underneath it. And it was sort of thought that he died with the secret of how that stuff was made. I mean, it's you know, it's pretty brutal. 
<laughs> it did preserve it did preserve the tattooing. But he basically found that he was investigated, Varlik was, by the Nazis, and they basically said to him, like, what the hell are you doing? And he's they wrote down his recipe and it was in the Nazi archives and and um oh they found it and he took it to a chemist and they recreated it and they tried it out on some tattooed pigskin and it worked like perfectly. Um wow. Yeah. And so like even stuff like that, you know, where you can kind of recreate using historical yeah. evidence, like recreate some of the yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we can inject some cocaine. Let's do. I'm sure <laughs> there's someone who will try that. There's it's Mick's cut. We've got no sound from Mick, but all I see was him waving his hand. So I think we've oh. got a volunteer. <laughs> no, sorry, I was <laughs> I was saying it's um Did you have a shouting cat, so you had to mute yourself. Yeah, I did. So <laughs> it's just being really weird. I don't know if you've seen me run off a couple of times. Yeah. Rescue a cat with a cat. Oh yeah, I've I know how that goes. My my cat's like that. So she'll be, she'll be shouting for food in a minute. Probably, get in a so. bin with a cone on. I'm like, why do I need to do this now? Can you not see? I'm busy. Um, what I was saying is um, I was actually giggling all the way through. You were saying that. So it's good that it's not on because I'll, I'll edit this out where I when you've just proved me wrong. But that's bonkers that 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 existed or um, at least anecdotally existed and, and actually worked. Yeah. I, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact... Um, the exact constituency of it but it, yeah there's, there's there's some photos of him doing it like of literally peeling this off um and some of the preserved skins are in the collection in hamburg wow. uh, and but yeah it was sort of it was it, it was this sort of lost secret of tattooing and, and ole you know found this sort of buried away in in some deep nazi archive um and and yeah tested it out and it works pretty works pretty well grant's dad stuff I asked him to tattoo, he hasn't tattooed. When the like AIDS epidemic sort of hit, he just put it all away and never tattooed again. Well, really he briefly sort of got some of his stuff out to tattoo Grant and tell Grant what to do. And then um, that's how Grant learned. But wow. I've said, please, please will you tattoo me? Like he's got so many machines that he's made. Even his first one that he made out of a doorbell. He's got his old transformer. He's got like a foot pedal he made. And I mean, I'm happy for him not to use the sponge and the ink. Like that can stay. <laughs> yeah, stay don't in use there. it. Don't, yeah. <laughs> but, but to use the machines, I was like, just I've been begging them, like, please, just tattoo with it, with it even so, though it probably hurt like fuck. This is why you should chat to George because George, you know, was getting tattooed in the '60s, and he he would say that he'd go, you know, he'd go to Ben Gunn or, or whoever and, and would get, he's like, he's like, you want to get tattooed at the beginning of the month because that's when they change their needles. Yes. Right. So gross. And, yeah. And he was like, obviously when, when obviously when AIDS happened, they, they were like, loads of those guys were absolutely hundred percent convinced they were going to have HIV because, yeah. you know, they, mm. also another part of, British tattoo history that's not that well known, I think, is just how intersect intersect it was with queer culture, right? Like Mr. Sebastian, who I write about a lot, um, was tattooing in Mount Pleasant. Um, he was a customer of George's. He got tattooed by Leslie Birchett as well. Um, and like, yeah, like the, those customer bases didn't overlap that much. Like he had his own client base of gay men predominantly, but it wasn't entirely exclusive. Like lots of lots of gay men were getting tattooed in the in the 80s before you know when AIDS was around but before people know, knew exactly how it spread or whatever and yeah George George said to me when I interviewed him like straight up they really were sure that 
just because they didn't know any better why would you i suppose um they were all going to have hiv or whatever yeah. and, uh, and thankfully thankfully they avoided that or you know he did at least mr sebastian wasn't so lucky but yeah it's that because that also that part of that part of tattoo history is also super interesting to me like how intersected it is with other cultural yeah. scenes you know um like tattooing was a big part of like gay culture and completely like you know talking about stuff that's hidden away like in mr sebastian's archives uh that i've um, had access to a lot there's so many pictures of people who otherwise look like you know very straight very kind of middle class guys who have got like the filthiest stuff tattooed on them <laughs> like probably probably even in some of them you wouldn't even see it if you saw them in their underwear like it's all like around their groin areas and stuff um and all of that kind of hidden history of 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 gay tattooing and actually how it, how adjacent it was and how connected it was with the wider tattoo scene um is super super interesting there were definitely definitely plenty of homophobic and horrible tattooers as well who, who didn't like that stuff but like yeah not as not as much as you'd imagined let's put it that way and i, I that's what again i love about i love about tattoo history because it's it is just this this insight into into kind of quote-unquote normal people's life you know yeah. in a really interesting way that's what i love that that is yeah i do find it so interesting while we we've taken up so much of your time and i just appreciate you talking to us and i just you know i'm going to ask you so much when we start like mm. what talks can i come what books can i read and all this but before we let you go I'm always really interested in hearing about female tattooists and like yeah. early female tattooists, people like Maud Wagner. Yeah. Who who would you consider like the first sort of female tattooists that are well known or well, so so in so in Britain, she's not the first working, but she certainly was the first prominent uh tattooer, right? Jessie Knight, who I've mentioned, who started tattooing in her dad's shop in Wales in nineteen twenty-seven when she was eighteen. Wow. Um, you know, I didn't real, think she was that early. Yeah, like real pioneer. I mean, she really sort of kicked off her career when she moved uh, to Kent uh, with uh, with them um, Charlie Bell uh, in the in the uh, like fifties. But she was tattooing as early as nineteen twenty seven. Um, but uh, and, you know, um, and uh, Dot Shaw, who um, Terry did an amazing work, like tracking down her down and trying to and, and hurtling her amazing story of working alongside again the really first in, first visible tattooer of color, um, Prince yeah. Eugene in Blackpool. Really complicated and difficult story, but an amazing one of a young woman, uh, you know, tattooing in Blackpool in the seventies. Uh, and Winnie um, Ayres, who worked alongside Jesse and who retired from tattooing and hasn't said much since she retired. So there's there's that kind of like generation of, of a few women in Britain, but like going back earlier than this, right? Like. The more we look, the more we find. They weren't famous. They weren't super unknown. But like we find, for example, someone like Annie Kitteridge, who's was the only tattooer in the South London Street Directory during World War One. Um, her husband was a tattooer as well, a guy called Josiah Kitteridge. But she was at least for a couple of years listed as the sole proprietor there, Mrs. Annie Kitteridge, in, you know, in 1917. Um, there are names that come up. Um, in the censuses of women who are tattooers um, and occasional mentions just in newspaper articles of like, you know, a woman tattooer. There's a great American 
article from the 1870s, so before there was a professional industry in this country, um, about an unnamed woman, and she's on the cover of the National Police Gazette, like tattooing this woman who's got a big long dress on, tattooing her ankles. Um, so yeah, like, you know, it's been a very male heavy male dominated industry, but like there's always been women around and there's loads of stories about, particularly, you know, if the, if the, if the, the guy who was a tattooer was like drunk or whatever, like the woman would run the shop for the weekend or if they're really busy, <laughs> the woman would do the lining, the wife would do the lining and then the, um, the, the, the husband would do the, the, the shading and the coloring in the more difficult bit, so to speak. <laughs> so that those 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 stories are, are still to be told, you know. Um, and there's there's a lot more I think that, to be uncovered. But um, certainly we see women's names, you know. Um, and yeah, you know, in the US we've you've got you've got as you said, Maud Wagner. You've got Millie Hull, uh, amazing um, woman. Nora Hildebrand, apparently Martin Hildebrand's daughter, who's a tattooed lady, was tattooing. A lot of the women who were actually performing tattooed ladies probably did tattoo as well a little bit as part of their acts, you know, to make money. Um, so Tom Riley's wife, Flo, probably tattooed a bit. Um, yeah, so, so women, you know, women, women always part of this, always part of this story. And certainly in the history of tattooing, and this is partly because of how newspapers report on things, but more, most of the articles about tattoo, you know, crazes and tattoo trends are about women because it's more titillating and more shocking and a good, a good excuse yeah. for a newspaper an image of a woman's leg or a woman's unclothed back or whatever (laughs) right and i suppose sorry when um i can't remember her name now which is bad but uh when she was cheryl cole and she had those big big roses on her bum yeah yeah in the paper more than the prime minister yeah for that that right wasn't it (laughs) exactly yeah it's and that's that's always been the case you know it's always been a good a good way to, to 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 kind of you know, to, to sell sell newspapers. Um, most of the pictures and uh, all of the film that I've got of George Burchett is of him tattooing women. Um, <laughs> you know, lad, uh, lad. I mean, Je- Jesse, for example. Like Jesse, obviously did tattoo women for a bit. There's some footage of her in the fifties tattooing <clears throat> women from the army in order shop. But she had a sign in her shop saying, "I don't tattoo women." How right? funny! Yeah, that's mad. So, and, and, and wrote lots of, I mean, she's an amazing woman. She wrote lots of poetry about how difficult it was being a woman in a man's industry and, you know, how sexist everyone was. So, yeah, uh, it, you know, it's clearly a very macho, misogynistic industry, but there have always been these amazing women well, in and around. I'd love to learn more about that. And I suppose, like, in, in the World Wars, women stepped up and proved themselves that they could do these men's jobs right and that would cover everything so i wouldn't be surprised if there were so many more stories of like a, a sort of women tattooing in that sort of time and yeah i'm interested yeah and i was i was saying you know one of the things that's really helped my job and you know i, I think i'm i'm very fortunate that my career has sort of coincided with this becoming a thing is like the digitization of newspaper archives um yeah but that's made it a lot easier than it might otherwise have been to find historical stories but still particularly in the uk like tabloids aren't digitized very much so like you know the times 
Yeah, well, so the Times and the Daily Mail and the Independent and the Guardian, you know, are all digitized and lots of the old Victorian magazines are all digitized stuff. So it's becoming easier to find these stories. But obviously, like the Sun and the People and the Express and their kind of, you know, certainly from that period of the 50s, even the Mirror, um, there, there are stories in there that which which we sort of stumble across, you know, or which which are known about through references in other places, but which aren't discoverable in that kind of systematic way. And I think like because the kind of like oh local woman is a tattooist is the kind of thing that would have been in a local newspaper, you yeah. know, um, but just isn't findable online yet. So a lot, yeah. of, of, and I, you know, as I said, like for a long time, that, that people that did my job were only looking in. Uh, in museums and and the things you find in museums are criminal tattooing and sailor tattooing because they're the people whose bodies got recorded this Mm. more vernacular history just wasn't there to be found now looking in private collections we find people that you know people that have kept clippings um you know people who were tattooists or or tattoo collectors over the years kept magazine clippings and whatever um and 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 things are being digitized but like this more systematic history is just still pretty we're only scratching the surface of what's there yeah. to be found, I think. I was just going to say, I found this resource. It was like, um, I think it was 2003, the BBC asked people to submit their stories of growing up in wartime Suffolk. And there's this database of hundreds and hundreds of submissions they'd had. And it was literally just somebody saying, yeah, I lived in Needle Market and the high street got bombed and that's yeah. why this building isn't there anymore. And, or like I was evacuated to lower stuff, but it would just be a few lines about this time this plane crashed and stuff. And it's, as, there's so much, there was so much in this. I just soaked it up. I read them all over weeks and it was- Amazing. But it was just those stories, isn't it? The, you just need somebody to say, yeah, there was a tattooist down the road and his name was Stack or something like that. And then you go, oh, okay, let's look. We've got that to go on and that's going. And it's just, and a lot of the tattoo history, it seems to be, like you said earlier, the people who talk, people like Lau relaying these stories and yeah, it's just to me I just find it so interesting if I if I had my way it'd be history podcast <laughs> like maybe <laughs> sports cast or transformers cast <laughs> well I think I mean but that's it right like the the the, the stories I mean the thing that also I find frustrating about tattoo history and but beautiful as well is so much of it is is disconnected from either the people who are tattooed or the artists who did the tattooing you either get the kind of personal story of the person who is tattooed or you get something about the art the artist and not much about their customers and trying to like join those dots up is an interesting challenge Mm. um and also you know certainly as we get back into the era like pre-photography so into the kind of early 19th century and earlier figuring out what tattoos looked like is really difficult because even when you find evidence of tattooing, it will just be described as, you know, tattoos or yeah. ink marks or whatever. Mm. And it's it's impossible, really, to, to figure out what they might have looked like. I mean, there, there are occasional drawings and paintings of tattoo people from uh, that period earlier, but not many. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a tough, but you know, it keeps me keeps me employed. So, are there any images of Lady Edith's tattoos? Yeah, there are. So. Um, there's, there was a photograph in Life magazine of her uh, sitting there with with her legs out, and then there was a there was a weekend supplement in um, the syndicated American press which showed pictures of both of her legs. Oh. So yeah, you can see those. Oh, she had absolutely. A, she, 
She had a family. You know I mean, I'll remind, remind me. I'll send them to you. She yeah. had a family crest on one leg and a sort of snake on the other one. Wow, I love that. The other, the other amazing woman from that period actually uh, is a woman called Amy Crocker, um, who was this absolute like wild child, kind of millionaire's daughter. Um, she wrote her autobiography was called "And I Do It Again." If you get a sense of the kind of woman she was, did and she? she did she get a ship to sail from San Francisco or somewhere like that? And she sailed yes. over to Asia. She, so she's from San Francisco, yeah. And she, was, she, she got tattooed in Japan by Hori Chio. She got t- tattooed in, in New York by Hori Toyo when he was working in New York. And like she had, she's just this remarkable, remarkable woman. And she very visibly had her tattoos on display. And there are some good um, photographs of her with her badass yeah. Japanese tattoos out. I yeah, read that really years ago. Amazing woman. Yeah, and I was like, every page was like, it was just mouth open, jaw drops, like my word. Yeah, she was an amazing woman. She literally just was like, right, I'm going to do this by myself. So I'm going to, I need a crew. You're going to be the captain of my ship. This is the ship. Yeah. I paid for it, and we're going to go. And literally hiding in in Hong Kong and not being able to go out by herself, and just yeah, incredible. Like, there's a great story in her autobiography of how like she basically sort of got sexually aroused by a snake. And like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, she was a, a character. Absolutely remarkable, remarkable woman. And like, yeah, um, like, yeah. So, so I'm just really, again, really grateful for, of, of stories like that where you can kind of piece together individual stories. Yeah, absolutely. And it's down to people like yourself to to find them out for us and tell us and relay the information. And I really appreciate everything that you, you do. And I really hope that there can be another exhibition as well, that something, something else is just so, well, I, yeah, so I, interesting. I think now the, now the, now, now Neil's collection is in Wales, I think there'll definitely be a Jessie exhibition at some point in the next few years uh, dedicated to her. We, we told her story, um, a bit as much as we could in the in the space we had available in the in the um, Falmouth show, but she's a she's a woman in a family. Actually, her whole family just deserves a story, uh, yeah. all of its own. Just remarkable, you know. Like her her sister was a um, like circus sharpshooter. Her brother in law was a cowboy act. Her mother's <laughs> a poet. Like wrote greetings cards. Like just really incredible, incredible family of really mad, incredible people. Um, yeah. And yeah, a really remarkable woman who, again, is not unknown. Like, her, you know, she's been well known and well respected for a long time, but it was great to kind of, be able to have these ingredients of her life story to, to tell. Yeah. And I think that was, that was one of the reasons why it was re- I was really keen to try and save, you know, save that material because it's just much easier for future historians um, to figure out this stuff if it's all in one place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And not spread around lots of private collections around the world. Yeah. And like, you know, as, as you know, from talking to people that you're talking to, uh, again, I was like, you know, it's, I'm so, if we, if it wasn't for these amazing uh, collectors, this stuff wouldn't exist at all, but it would all would have been thrown away. But the problem is all of the knowledge about this material is all in people's heads. And yeah. a lot of them have been quite, and again, understandably so, but been quite shy or quite reticent about telling the stories. Some of the stories may not even be true in the first place. Um, there's a lot of Chinese whispers, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and unfortunately, as these people are kind of passing away, um, 
it, you know after they've gone it's impossible to get these stories down so i'm just really grateful to what you guys are doing and talking to people because i think you know it's really important to record as much of this stuff as possible before it it slips away oh thank you that's that's how i feel you know that's why i'm trying so hard to speak to people like Kay and charlie and i just um yeah just to record it really and hear it firsthand and and everyone has their own memories and everything happens slightly different in people's memories and but just yeah. to just to speak to them like yeah it's so like I say to Mick every time we say this like we get off the phone to somebody and go oh that's great when I oh, I'm buzzing that was awesome and every time I think each podcast we do I'm like that was my favorite now that was my favorite <laughs> and just for me personally, it brings me so much joy to speak to these people. I'm so thankful to everybody that I speak to because everyone's contribution just, you know, it, it helps me <laughs> and my generation of, of tattooists. And I think it's so important to pre- preserve the history and, and learn it. Yeah. And you know, don't forget, like, that's what tattooists have been doing since, I mean, since probably been before the 19th century, but certainly, you know, like McDonald was writing to people, Birchett in particular, like, was collecting stuff. Lescu's really, we have so much to thank him for, for like setting up networks in the Bristol Tattoo Club and reaching out to the US yeah. and bringing American towing over and um, sharing knowledge and sharing history and talking about people, you know, even if some of it wasn't true, all the tall tales are part <laughs> of the fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and I think that's again what's so beautiful about tattooing as a as a folk art right it is this it is this kind of intergenerational thing that's handed down by apprentice through apprenticeships and through rivalries and through storytelling and like that that yeah. stuff is very is, is a huge part of why it's so brilliant that's it yeah that it and it is brilliant and i love it that really is my whole life and i love it so much <laughs> i feel very lucky to do this job and yeah. and get to speak to people like yourself so yeah oh this is all very nice this is nice isn't it <laughs> so usually we're getting like i've been i've done it now will you fuck off now so. i know i know <laughs> we've kept you so we've oh my god i've just looked at the time and we have kept you so long i i appreciate your time so much matt and yeah, hopefully we can pleasure. speak to you again because i'm gonna think of so many questions when we get off of <laughs> call to you but um <laughs> hopefully and hopefully we can hang out in person. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. It's, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great. Nice to chat to you. Thank you, man. <laughs> Cheers. Bye.